Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Asian coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet. We had a good run. We didn't get as far as we needed to. What now? And the what now is the self-arrest is, instead of trying to idealistically encourage everybody to somehow levitate to globalism, a sort of Gandhi, Bodhisattva kind of perspective, it's the self-arrest of get that ice pick in the ground for healthy tribalism. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Kaplankaya with Jamie Will. Jamie is specialized in the neuroscience and application of flow states. He has advised U.S. Naval War College, owners of the NBA and Premier League teams, executive of Google, Deloitte, and Goldman Sachs. He is the founder of the Flow Genome Project and co-author of the bestseller Stealing Fire. He started the interview telling me about the erosion of faith in the trustability of our institutions, like traditional religions and modern liberalism. But be careful when you kill your God, reminds Jamie Will, because you also rip out the entire morality that came with your God out of your social framework. He also cites Winston Churchill. Democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others that have been tried. In this context, I asked him what would be the best system. To me, I think, you know, just to sort of take this conversation where it might go, which is, which is what do we do and how do we organize and what, what, what chance do we have for positive influence in a world where it feels like the gears, the forces, the levers, you know, the mechanisms, <laughs> and even the momentum, just how fast we're going in a certain direction mm-hmm. with so much weight behind it, is render unto Caesar, right? Pay your taxes to whatever nation state has the military enforceable power of taxation upon you. Right? So color inside the lines to the extent that your conscience and your values and your lifestyle permit it. And then spend your time on a basically local tribalism. So you know, many people on inspirational, you know, writing inspirational books, speaking at TED and Davos and conferences like this will often you know, thump the tub for a global expansion of consciousness. Right, that what we yeah. need to do is we need to rise up and we need to rise up beyond our petty factions and borders and disagreements and rally together as the human race to address these global problems that we face. And you're like, yes, we absolutely do need to do that. But in a concrete way, it's hard to... Well, yeah, and, and your end, you know, just to sort of assess, you're like, sort of, look, it's been 75-odd years since the end of World War II. This has been the largest sustained period of peace, even in, you know, in spite of and including Iraq, Afghanistan, all the various other things that have been happening. 75 years of extreme material abundance and peace and access, especially via the age of the internet and everything else, to all the healing, growing, transforming technologies that humans have ever had anywhere. And we still haven't, picked, we haven't come remotely close to pulling this off. Right? In fact, we're kind of going backwards. So for me, this wasn't my first choice. My first choice was we figure that out. Right? Yeah. But my second choice is we are, it's like we're on, on Mount Everest and we've slipped and we're starting to slide down the mountain. 
And if you know anything about mountaineering, you carry those ice axes, right, to keep you safe as you go. And when you slip, you have about three seconds to stick the pick of that axe in the snow and self-arrest before you get going too fast. So, so I feel that's like- That's where we are. That's where we are. We've slipped, you know, and you could say Brexit, you could say the Trump election, you could say the riots in the United States, you could say what's happening in Eastern Europe. You could say we've slipped. You know, the bipolar balance of power that was the Cold War became the unipolar balance of power that was U.S. hegemony for the last 20 years, which is now coming undone. You know, Russia has tagged the ruble to gold for oil and gas. Saudi is now selling remnant B. You know, they're, they're, like they're changing the currencies to China, so China's getting its energy there. The U.S. as reserve currency of the world is just flipped and is going away in the next 10 years with massive impacts to North America and Western Europe, right? So we need to say, okay, we had a good run. We didn't get as far as we needed to. What now? And the what now is the self-arrest is instead of trying to idealistically encourage everybody to somehow levitate to globalism, a sort of Gandhi, Bodhisattva kind of perspective, it's the self-arrest of get that ice pick in the ground for healthy tribalism. And when we look at tribalism, you're like, well, we know some unhealthy tribalism. If it's based Which on kind, yeah. blood and soil, that tends to not go well. If it's based on faith and creed, you know, the saved and the damned, that tends not to go too well. So basically religion and ethnicity are not, don't always end up as, those are the old ones, we've seen those movies. So the, arguably the healthiest regression to tribalism that we have is bioregionalism. Local, where do I live? What is my mountains? What are my rivers? What, is my, what are my fields and my food source? Who also lives here? And we can find, right, there's a way where we literally can just ask our neighbors, and you know, people who live beside us and around us, you know, how big is your circle of concern? You care about our houses not burning down, so do we. Do you want to start a bucket brigade with water, you know, for, to, to beat the wildfire? You care about where our kids go to school, so do we. Great, we can agree this far. We don't need to worry about whether we can we count angels on the same pinheads in our philosophies or religions or where we go when we die. Just, I don't want our house to burn and I'll help you keep yours alive too. I like our kids to have a healthy education. We all want clean air, clean water, and clean soil to live, breathe, and eat. So we can agree there. Do you care from our town? Great, right? Do you care for our country? Do you care for the world? And, and what we don't need to do is extend our highest, most abstract, but often tightly held beliefs about God, about the universe, about life, about politics, right? We don't have to disagree at that level and then fracture from any of them simpler, more obvious levels of communication and cooperation. So if we can find ways to agree where we do and give each other the respect to disagree where we don't, but get together and work around the here and now of self-sufficient and vibrant local community, which by the way, I mean, I think Turkey has a much more intact folk tradition than many, many places in Western Europe and the United States. They are the longest into consumer industrial society, and the very nature of that fractures and atomizes individuals from kinship and local place-based networks into I can go anywhere and be anyone and have and do anything. Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, right, it snaps.
when Amazon doesn't deliver two days on your doorstep. But people are used to travel now, and it's going to be hard to take it back from them. So how do you include like the nomadism kind of uh, to your uh, local <clears throat> communities? I mean, one thing is that you know, jet fuel-based nomadism is you know it's wonderful. It's an incredible privilege to get to nip around the world and 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 hopscotch between beautiful places in the perfect season to be there and you know all of those kinds of things and that might be one of the things that slows down lessens um, it's harder and harder to justify the energetic costs but i think that a lot of people who are on that sort of techno nomadic global circuit and i and i wrote about that in a book called stealing fire because i just started noticing i was like well wait the same people that are at Davos, are at Ibiza, are at the UN, are at Burning Man, are at South by Southwest, are at TED. And you're like, wait, this is the same 10,000 people, you know, just <laughs> pinballing around the world. And it's all very, very chummy and really, really, you know, fun, beautiful, inspiring. But if you talk quietly with many of those folks, I think there's a sense of, at some point, the fabulousness of it all starts to shine a little less brightly and everybody's yearning for home and tribe. And that requires settling a bit and that requires putting down roots and that requires saying no to the infinite realm of possibilities and delight and novelty to say yes to, we're actually going to slow this down and put roots down and experience the satisfaction of, of that kind of commitment and what comes from it. So what's the top of the Everest? You are talking about the Everest. What, in which direction are we going? What the top? What are we expecting? What's realistic? Well, okay, you just said it. What's realistic? <laughs> Not optimistic. What I, what yeah. I honestly think, my, my most kind of considered opinion, is that we are likely in for a hard landing not a soft transition, that the time for the soft transitions was, you know, when people started talking about it. It was the 70s through the 90s. That was the time we had to steer the Titanic. And everybody said we needed to, and everybody did nothing. And now we are 100% hitting that iceberg, 100%. There's, there's enough already loaded into both our ecological and our economic systems, right? Then even if tomorrow we woke up and we were some combination of John Maynard Keynes and Mother Teresa, and we just acted just brilliantly from here on, there would still be a 20 to 30 year hangover effect that we would need to flush through the system. So the question is, you know, to, I'll stick with the Titanic metaphor, you know, is it a glancing blow? Does that, the, you know, the, the unsinkable ship survive with some dings? Um, or does it just gouge a hole down the side? Is, a, is an open question. And the, the fundamentally the, the nut, right, and we see this, we just don't always acknowledge it, is that our entire society from, you know, late 19th century, but really let's just say 20th century to 21st century, is based on the absolute fluke of discovering 100 million years of buried starlight in the form of fossil fuels sticking straws in the ground and setting it all on fire. And that release of energy was unprecedented. Before that, all we had was photosynthesis, right? Plants growing from the sun, metabolism, 
animals eating the plants and turning it into muscle and protein and meat and potentially the ability to for an ox to plow a field, right, and do those things. And biomass, you know, lighting, you know, wood and coal maybe on fire. That was it. And then we got into the carbon era. But can we go back to that? Well, this is the thing, right? So, so the question is, you know, if you've, there's an economist, I forget his first name, but it's Kuznets, K-U-Z-N-E-T. Yeah. And the Kuznets curve basically says, hey, um, we shouldn't back off our technological development because more technologically developed societies actually pollute less. They come down that bell curve to the other side. They become green, like, like Scandinavia, or Western Europe, any of those kinds of things. So we actually want to accelerate technological process and development to get everybody up and over the Kuznets curve. If you're a hunter-gatherer, you don't pollute much. But if you're a developing nation, right, whether that was Korea and the paper tigers you know, in, in Asia, whether that's India or China now, it's those folks they're the ones that do the most polluting. So you want to actually help them go further into technological acceleration and development, not backwards. That's the general argument. But there was a university of Thai in Thailand that did a study saying, well, is that still true? Is that true all the way around the world? And what they found is that actually in 20 of 24 countries, contemporary countries, so smaller ones distributed around the world, it, um, in 20 of the 24, that Kuznets curve did not show up and did not model accurately. And in fact, they said that it was really a Western European, North American phenomenon of post-World War era and OECD countries that that stayed true for. And so it's, so it's become kind of an article on, of faith for pro-development, right? Pro-expansion, pro-technology, you know, thinkers, writers, politicians, that, that kind of thing, to advocate that. So my sense is, is back to that, bioregional tribalism mm -hmm. idea. Um, it behooves us to invest massively in regional and local supply chains, fabrication, manufacture, design, and development. So we don't want to give up our technological know-how and, um, and capacities. I mean, whittling and weaving you know, our shoddy substitutes for silicon chips, you know, and, and renewable energy. But on the other hand, um, the game we're playing with that Kuznets curve is can we skillfully make the transition to a renewable energy future and economy um, without degrading our techno-industrial capacities to the point that we lose the ability to invent what's next. I was curious about how Jamie Will was articulating his views on the world, organization, politics and religion, and his work on self-optimization. You know, I wouldn't have articulated it any way in particular. I was just always just trying to follow the thread of both questions I knew I desperately wanted the answers to and who it seemed through history and cultures and civilizations seem to have the best guesses. And it always felt like this kind of, you know, this, this serpent, you know, it, it would sort of, or, or a roller coaster, you know, it would, it would bubble up in a place like ancient Greece with the Lucinian mysteries, you know, or the Sufis. And, and you know, Rumi and Hafez, you know, like, like, you're like, oh, wait, they were on it, they were on it, you know, and then like Byron, and you, you kind of, you, and it comes and goes. And so I was always just trying to follow that. And what it seemed to come to was, a sort of rational mysticism. You know, what is a way of seeking 
seeking awe, even seeking connection with the ineffable, something bigger, but not abandoning the sort of requirements of logic and evidence and consistency behind it. And, and somebody asked me this a, a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, you know what, I think this is almost, and it's beautiful here being right on the Aegean in the site of so many Greek and ancient ruins and so much history, that it was sort of a modern day Pythagorean mystery school, because it's that idea of we don't have to put a false ceiling on our inquiry as you know, Western scientific materialism did, almost kind of arrogantly, right? Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Again, right? That's yeah, Descartes, right? That's it, right? Like, and, and for a while there was that, that presumption and that arrogance that that was all there was. But clearly for, you know, 100,000 years of human history, that was the least of it, right? And so, you know, and Pythagoras get, doesn't get nearly as much attention uh, because there's just not a lot of evidence, documentary evidence about him, than Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, right? But but Py Pythagoras was first. You know, I mean, he had the music of the spheres, and he had his you know geometric solids, and they and they and they lived together, and they wrestled, and they talked, and they spoke, and they were initiates into a mystery school, and they, it was and it was this arguably the seedbed of everything that came out since. And so I think that's really it. Is is how do we engage in our rational mysticism? that allows us to keep our bearings um, and embrace the very best of modernity, um, and at the same time, as Terence McKenna said, engage in some sort of archaic revival. How can we get back and revive many of the traditions and the practices and the experiences that humans have always rooted and anchored in and are so you know, profoundly sort of meaningful and satisfying and arguably necessary. So this uh, rational mysticism is a quest of your life? Yeah. I mean, I think very much so. My, my, my father, how I ended up um, being, I mean, my mother was South African and my father was English and I went to early boarding school in England and then we moved to the US. And the reason was because my father was a uh, test pilot for the Royal Navy and so his whole job was to take the fastest fighter planes on the planet and then push them to failure and then map them with differential calculus and then come back and train the fighter pilots and the NASA shuttle astronauts. So somehow, <laughs> not surprisingly, I kind of inherited something from that. And it's probably that my own experience, and so my experience was sort of split between academia, so sort of... Uh, doctoral studies in historical anthropology and on all of these kinds of things. So just really, really curious about this. How do, where do we go wrong? Where do we go right? What is up with this whole civilization thing? But at the same time, surf rescue and wilderness medicine and mountain guiding and action sports. So backcountry skiing, mountain bike racing, these various other things, and big nature. So I was always very interested in the super practical, but then also the historical. So for me, seeking these experiences and find, you know, everything. I'm always, you know, whether it's Kumbh Mela in India, the big giant festival with 100 million people, things like Boom Festival in Portugal, uh, the Burning Man experience, you know, in, in uh, Nevada in, in the United States, like any of these immersions of contemporary cultural phenomena. And you're like, well, what are those about? And how are they similar to what's come before? So my experience has been seeking that thread, seeking that roller coaster of light Right, as it pops up through time and space and our own culture, observing and participating in those experiences. And then back to that kind of that test pilot DNA, 
I can't help but at the same time as living it sort of see the zeros and ones of the code of how it's built. So I sort of, this is accidental, but I sort of find myself just going through life, probably also because I was never of a culture. I was always a stranger in a strange land. I was always supposed to be a part of a thing that I never quite felt I was a part of. So I just always see the schematic, the blueprint of how it's all assembled, which then, you know, if we can use that, as that insight into can we do better culture architecture going forward? Can we take the healthiest, best, most vibrant bits and pieces, and can we use that to build more intelligently for all of us for the future? That, to me, seems like a really fun and interesting project. Jamie Will is very easy to access. After his talk in Kaplankaya, a couple started to ask him questions about another topic he's famous for, sex. More and more people gathered with their plates under the tree to listen to what became an improvised speech with recommendations for an amazing couple sexual experience. And there's probably about a sort of, you know, $1,500 to $2,000 kind of toy box of high quality, beautiful, very functional sexual tools to toys. And there's everything from pelted floor trainers. If you think of like the original, I think it was the Sufis, right? They had that Imsak, which was the, which was, um, the ability, and it, back in the day, they like even increased the dowry for a woman who was trained and initiated in IMSAC, but it was fundamentally the capacity to bring a man to orgasm without moving her hips, right? So just full pelvic floor to internal contention. Jamie Will also discussed about the psychedelics that couple can take to improve their sexual experiences. I asked him what was the importance of psychedelics in general to improve the flow. I think that, you know, one thing is that deliberate sacramental substance use goes back in human history as long as we've been humans and arguably longer, right? Not just primates seek intoxication, mammals, even birds do. And so Ron Siegel, who's at UCLA, um, said that the drive for intoxication is actually arguably our fourth evolutionary drive after food, water, and reproduction. And, and, and you wouldn't think so, right? You would think a drunken monkey falls out of a tree, gets eaten by the leopard, right? But the, it is because it interrupts thinking in ruts. It interrupts our patterns and creates lateral innovation so that we get newness and we can come up with things. And it's a, you know, a well-known secret that Silicon Valley in California was 100% fueled by the LSD community in San Francisco from yes. the 60s through the 70s and, and, and beyond. Steve Jobs famously said that it was one of the most you know, seminal experiences of his life, but it was much, much more broadly distributed than that. And so uh, I think what is, you know, and right now there is a global movement, what is sometimes called the psychedelic renaissance, where clinical trials, where research at Imperial College, NYU, Johns Hopkins, really sort of, you know, an explosion of studies, Stanford, Harvard, um, lots of places are now actively picking up the thread, which got cut in the late 60s to early 70s when Richard Nixon and others, you know, just absolutely eclipsed um, and shut down all research into these domains. They're just, they are just a tool. They simply provide access to specific brain states 
and subjective experiences more or less on demand. The, the uh, NYU uh, neuroscientist Oliver Sacks, you know, he wrote about that. He said, he said, say what you will about drugs. You, know, you can have cultural or ethical or religious you know, ex you know, presumptions about them and that kind yeah. of thing. He says, say what you will, but they work. They work on demand. And one of the interesting things that's happening is because they work on demand, they are very good for um, accelerating scientific study of theories of mind, um, illness, disease, um, and wholeness and integration because you can give somebody a compound and you can put them in an fMRI machine or you can do any other measurement, CAT scans, whatever it would be, whatever you're trying to find instead of hoping that a Tibetan Lama that you found in the mountains can do these things in a lab. You can put lots of people through those experiences and you kind of know more or less where they're going so you can track it and map it. So that feels like a really helpful contribution to theories of consciousness, wellness, psychiatry, all that kind of stuff. I'm quite interested in the famous like Silicon Valley microdosing. Like, how do people take it? How much? How efficient? Can you tell us more about that? It's an interesting thing. I mean, if people are interested in sort of getting the history of microdosing, there was a former Stanford professor who way back in the day, I mean, he's been around for ages. He's probably in his 80s now. His name is James Fadiman, F-A-D-I-M-A-N. And he, he was actually studying this before it all got shut down. And then he did a sort of interesting workaround where he basically said, okay, look, I can't get you know, university approval to be doing studies on banned substances, but what I can do is say, hey, psst, people out there on the internet, if you're already doing it, report back. So he did this large, large study on basically you know, sort of um, elective do-it-yourself microdoses, and, and they all started reporting back. And for the last, mm, I don't know, five, 10 years, you know, he's been sharing that research and popularizing that practice. And the, so the typical is you do a tenth of what would be a functional dose. So for instance, Johns Hopkins uses three grams of psilocybin or, or, or psilocybin mushrooms, not the extract. Okay. Um, and that's their kind of functional dosage for their end of life studies, cancer studies, smoking cessation studies, that kind of a thing. And it's considered, at least for them, with that particular strain, with those strains of mushrooms, that uh, that's the sort of sweet spot between it's enough that somebody definitely opens their doors of perception, but not so much that, you know, scary or overwhelming things might okay. rush in. So Fadiman, for microdosing, would say take a tenth of that, so that would be 0.3 grams. And the key is it should be sub-perceptual threshold, meaning that you shouldn't actively notice it Okay. You're taking it. Okay, but you're more creative. Well, and so, yeah, so, so Fadiman's research, which is all these people chiming in via survey, was basically like, it's just, it's fantastic. It does everything. You lose weight, you stop smoking, you eat better, you're happier, you exercise more, you need you know, a blah, 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 blah. Anything you could possibly think of is better with microdosing according to those studies. But there has been a recent meta-analysis in the last six months that was basically saying there's virtually no effect on microdosing and an awful lot of it is placebo. You know, there's also been a study, a meta-analysis on intermittent fasting saying it doesn't help you do anything and lose weight. But I was talking with Mark Hyman about that. I was like, what do you think about that one, man? I'd love to get your, your take. And, and, and the question is, is obviously, you know, on the one hand, there can be tons of hype about the newest, latest, greatest thing, especially if it's a hack, a trick, or a shortcut. So we're, we're super primed to be like, I don't have to change my life. I don't have to, I don't have to follow some eight-limb path. I don't have to bow down to a guru and get up at four in the morning, just give me a pill. I'm, in, I'm in, tell me more, right? So there's that, there's the, there's the enthusiasm yes. for the novel and the easy. 
Um, but there is also the limitations of double-blind placebo-controlled experiment. And that's yeah. kind of where we are with, with that version of study. So, so the answer to, like, is microdosing real? Does it matter? All of those kind of things. I would say, um, and this is, you know, this is comparable to intermittent fasting, we are adaptive creatures. So anything that we do consistently over time either becomes addictive or ceases to work. We normalize and we adapt. And what is arguably more productive and generative for growth, for healing, for development, whatever these things might be, whatever your goals are, is variation and novelty and expanding the window or the spectrum of both body-brain experiences, what's our neurophysiology, you know, as well as our psychology. So get really, really hot in a sauna or a steam bath. Get really, really cold in an ice bath. Guts yourself silly on amazing, beautiful foods at a feast. Starve yourself. Exert yourself to the point where you're keeled over and puking. Rest and sleep deeply. Right? Our goal, you know, like be absolutely crystal clear, sober, and get absolutely lit and explore and expand the spectrum of all of these things for the widest range of sensory inputs, eustress and distress, and recovery. And arguably that leaves us more you know, informed, inspired, delighted, but also resilient. If there was a chip uh, we could put in your brain to make you even smarter, would you uh, put it? Well, that's something that, right, that, that Elon is doing that with Neuralink. Um, and that idea, at least as far as he's thought it through, is that AI is happening and it will be ubiquitous and potentially overwhelming to world systems in ways we might not understand now. So the best thing to do is supercharge humans so we have a chance of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with AI, which, you know, might work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in the realm of science fiction horror stories, what could possibly go wrong, you know? <laughs> so my sense is, is that we are, we're probably already living through it. I mean, if, if you can think of it or imagine it, it's probably already here. So that would be my sense. I, I feel like, you know, and you could think of like the psychedelic renaissance, right? That, that is, it is overwhelmingly skews to weird countries, like Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic, right? That's mm -hmm. pre the predominant access and exposure to these things. This cohort of people, of humans, are getting access to accelerated personal growth insights, experience, and with it, quite often, you know, chickens and eggs, not always easy to tell, but with it, increased uh, political power, economic influence, all these things. They may have had it already, and this is just they're dabbling around, or they've been also harnessing this to generate more. And at the same time, you have, you know, the bottom four billion of the world with barely access uh, to the basics of dignified existence. And so we are experiencing a bifurcation And there was an article in the American um, magazine, The Atlantic Monthly, and it was basically saying, has, and I think this was actually talking about Sweden again, but it was talking about, have we seen the last Down syndrome baby? Right? And the idea of just you know, genetic screenings and all these kind of things, the idea that like, the actual choice, knowing ahead of time via technology, what could happen, what would happen, what do we want for our children? Right? You're seeing, oh my gosh, genetic modification, and fundamentally, 
consumer-driven eugenics, right? Which, right? And, so, and so people get terrified of that word. It always goes back to the Third Reich. But you're actually like, oh, no, it's already here. It's just only available. You know, people who are saving eggs and fertilizing eggs and choosing which ones and all these kind of things. And then you just think of just demographic selection. You know, you move to a beautiful town, you move to Ibiza, you move to Lisbon, you move to, you know, wherever, Aspen or, you know, wherever it would be, and you're just surrounded by like-minded people. And it's a little bit, there's, a, there's an American radio program called Lake Wobegon, right, which was a very famous kind of radio show for 30 years. And it was this fictional town that said where, where all the, the women are smart, the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. Because the moment you've allowed even a hairline crack between care for all of humanity and an ethical obligation to, to step up on behalf of the least of our brothers and sisters, you've created uh, the seeds of um, a spiritual fascism. And so my sense is, is that I think there could well be, and I think I would count myself in this camp of you know, almost just ahead of time making a pledge. I am going to live this experience the way I was put on this earth, fully. And can I commit to this body, Right? No, no uploading my consciousness to computers. This lifetime, no cryogenics, no crazy life extinction, no waiting to get ahead of the cancer technology so I can live forever like a shark or a tortoise. And, and this planet, you know, no pissing off to the moon or Mars. This is our home and it's on us to fix it. And if we left it a smoldering ruin, we would assuredly take all of those habits and all of those limitations in our thinking and being to wherever else we went next. So this planet, this body, this lifetime, all of us or none of us. It's time for the harvest of the day. If something could be done quite easily and it would make the world a better place, like tomorrow, what would it be for you? I mean, I would say, honestly, it, it's plant a garden and love thy neighbor. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Jamie Will's views on local tribalism and his approach of psychedelics. If you did, please leave us a good review and until next time, 